Well, today we're going to be talking about Christian ethics and the Mosaic Law. Now, it's very important uh, that if you didn't get a chance to hear what we were talking about last week in justification, uh, if you will go to our website and hear that lesson. We cannot talk about what it looks like to follow Christ ethically in our actions until we understand that we are justified by faith alone in Christ. Amen? So my fear, I don't want you taking this lesson today and then feeling like you have to do all these things to make God like you or love you or not be mad at you. He's not mad at you in Christ, all right? He loves you in Christ. And because we're justified, because we're loved, we then walk in righteousness. We then become and act out what we are already declared to be, which is holy and righteous and just. So today, here's the question we're going to try to answer, okay? This is simply the question we're trying to answer today. Are Christians bound by the Old Testament Mosaic law? If so, to what extent? If so, to what extent? How do we as Christians walk and follow the Bible's commands? I think most of us understand if Jesus were to tell us, you know, to love him or not to murder, how we should do that. How are we to understand these Old Testament Mosaic law? How do we understand this as Christians today? That's the primary thing we're going to be going over. The second half of the class, we're going to do something that's a little bit different than you would normally have in a New Testament class. We're going to be talking about some different Christian ethical systems. And so I think it should be a lot of fun. Let me tell you why this is really important, at least in our culture right now. Uh, There are a lot of people who are making a case against Christians to say that we are inconsistent on how we apply the Bible when it comes to the Old Testament. Uh, You will see people on Facebook, you will see people on Twitter, you will see people on the news say, you Christians are inconsistent in that you condemn homosexuality, but you eat bacon, and you eat pork, and you don't keep certain holy days, and you wear certain clothes made out of blended cloths. And what they will do is what they're trying to say is, why are you taking one part of the Old Testament Mosaic law, homosexuality, for example, and keeping that? But you're getting rid of these other things that seem to be there. You seem to be inconsistent, all right? So there's a misunderstanding there of what we actually hold when it comes to Old Testament Mosaic Law. Uh, There was actually a lady who I think is no friend to Christianity. Her name is Rachel Held Evans, and she wrote a book called, uh, what was it? It was something about uh, biblical, what was it, biblical womanhood? You know what I'm talking about? I can't remember the name. It just left me. It was, uh, what's the name of it, Jeff? Do you remember what it is? That's exactly right. She wrote a book called A Year of Biblical Womanhood. Sorry, that's not in my notes. I couldn't remember it. I don't like it, so I don't memorize it. Uh, And what she did in there is she tried to keep all the Old Testament mosaic laws that a woman had to keep, but she didn't do that in a righteous way. She did it so that she could mock God's Old Testament law and show how ridiculous it would be today so that people don't have to follow God's New Testament commands about the roles of men and women. That's why she did that. Uh, But even in that, there's a misunderstanding of what the Old Testament law is meant to do and how we're to understand it. Uh, And so this is a very contemporary hot topic as well. So with all that in mind, let's talk a little bit about the Old Testament Mosaic law and how that either does or does not apply to Christians today. Everybody with me? Okay. I got an extra hour of sleep, so I'm going to be extra loud and fiery. Okay. So... John Calvin. We like John Calvin. He's a good guy. Uh, He is one of the premier Protestant theologians. Uh, We'll be talking some next week about his concept of predestination when Jeff uh, talks. By the way, that doesn't start with Calvin. Calvin gets it from Augustine. And it doesn't start with Augustine. Augustine gets it from Paul. And it doesn't start with Paul. He gets it from God. All right? So we always want to make sure we're going back to the Bible. But Calvin's really good on a lot of issues. I disagree with him slightly, though, when it comes to this issue. Here's what Calvin said. He said, the Old Testament law is divided into three parts. The three parts are moral. Somebody give me an example of a moral law. 
Yeah, that shall not, or, or more accurately, murder, right? So murder, stealing, things like that. Civil. What's a good uh, Old Testament civil law that has to do with how you relate to the nation of Israel? So that would be, uh, that'd be more civil law outside of the Mosaic law. So we're under civil law of America, but within the Mosaic law, an example would be like maybe stoning an adulteress, all right? So if we were to stone an adulteress, that was something that you were commanded to do as a citizen of Israel. And the last one is ceremonial. Okay? So what Calvin said is that the law is divided basically into moral, civil, and ceremonial parts, things that are ethical, things that relate to the nation of Israel as a government, and then things that, uh, you know, are like sacrificing sheep or something for your sin or keeping certain holy days or not eating certain forms of, you know, food, certain cash root, kosher laws in Judaism. And so what Calvin said is that Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament, but we are still bound by the moral law. Okay? And, and there's some debate about this, the civil. Okay? And the civil. Now, there's some debate about this, whether or not Calvin actually held civil, but his followers also held the civil, okay? So everybody with me so far? So this is what I was told growing up. What I was told growing up is that Christ has fulfilled the law, but we're still bound by the Old Testament moral law. We're still bound not to kill, not to steal. By the way, we're not to kill, but I'm going to get to that later. So wait till I finish this lesson before you kill anyone, all right? So just to make sure we understand. If you do that, I want you knowing why you've done it, okay? So uh, what Calvin said is that there's the moral, civil, and ceremonial law the ceremonial we don't keep anymore. We don't need to offer a sacrifice of a lamb. Christ is the lamb of God that was sacrificed, okay? But we still need to keep these Old Testament uh, moral commands that are given to us because they're in the Old Testament and God has made one continuous covenant with his people, uh, and so that's what we're to do. Everybody with me so far? I lovingly disagree with this scheme completely, okay? Why? The Bible sees the Old Testament Mosaic Law. When I say Mosaic Law, by the way, I'm meaning Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what's called the Torah. All these commands about keep this day off and sacrifice this animal on this day and do all of that. The Bible sees God's Old Testament Law as one thing. One thing, not three. Christ did not die just to cover you from one-thirds of the law. He did not in his righteousness and in his life just complete two-thirds of the law. Christ in his life completes the entire law for you. So Calvin's distinction of moral, civil, and ceremonial law does not exist in the Bible. When you break a moral command, guess what? You're also ritually impure and you've also sinned against your nation. When you break a civil command, guess what? You've also now sinned, which is moral, and you need to be cleansed by a sacrifice, which is ceremonial. When you break a ceremonial law, you're unclean, you have to go out of the camp, and you've sinned, or something like this. Do you see how they're all intertwined? What Calvin's trying to do is he's trying to figure out, we know we're not supposed to murder people, but how do we not murder people if Christ has fulfilled all the Old Testament law? So what he's done is in fulfilling the law, he's fulfilled the ceremonial and maybe the civil, but we're still bound by the moral. Everybody with me? I know there's a lot of info, so I'm just making sure it sinks in. I'm simply here to say, let me say this very clearly. We as Christians are not bound by the Old Testament Mosaic law, period. Jesus has fulfilled all of the law on our behalf, not just a third or two-thirds. He has fulfilled all of it. I'm going to show you a bunch of texts. The texts we're about to read, I want you to see two things. One, I want you to see that the law is seen as one big thing. It's not divided into parts. And two, I want you to see that those in Christ have had the law fulfilled on their behalf because of what Christ has done. Everybody with me so far? Let me say it stronger. Stronger. 
you are not bound by the Ten Commandments, part of the Old Testament Mosaic Law. Now, you still don't murder, but we're going to talk about why you don't murder, why you don't steal, and these kind of things in a second. But Christ has come to fulfill the law on your behalf. We are not under Old Testament Mosaic Law. Everybody with me? Now, let's look at some passages. You should have this in your handout. Look at these. The language here is very good, very strong too. This is Paul talking about missional living, which we talked about in Acts 17 a few weeks ago in the sermon. We talked about how we need to adapt our methods to reach different people. This is what the Apostle Paul does. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 21. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. All right? So when Paul's hanging out with the Jews, he's not eating a pork sandwich. Okay? He's not doing these things that would be offensive. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Now look at this next line here. Though not myself being under the law. He's saying when I'm hanging out with Jews, I follow these rules to not offend them, but I'm not under the law. I'm not under the Mosaic law. When I say law for the rest of this lecture, by the way, I mean Old Testament Mosaic law. I don't mean something like how you have to obey the state. Okay? Though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Here's simply what he's saying. When I hang out with Jews, I do Jewish things to not offend the Jews. I'm not bound by it. I don't have to keep it. It's not offensive to God if I eat bacon, but when I'm around the Jews, it's offensive to them, so I don't eat it. When I'm around the Gentiles and they invite me over for eggs and bacon on Saturday morning, I have some. Now, I'm not free to just do whatever I want. He says, though I'm not under the law of Moses, I'm under the law of Christ. I still have a master. By me saying you're not under the Mosaic law, it does not mean there are not rules for us to follow. It means the rules that we follow and who we follow has changed. The jurisdiction of the laws have changed. Galatians 5.18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Okay? If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. How about that language? Does that stress you out? And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Romans 7, 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Galatians 5, 1 through 3. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. God's Old Testament law is not bad. The fact that we're sinful and we're broken and we cannot keep it is bad. And when we try to keep it, instead of trusting Christ to be our righteousness, we fall under slavery because we cannot keep it. That's what he's saying, okay? Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, meaning this marker that shows you're trying to follow the Old Testament Mosaic law, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You cannot, according to this text, pick and choose which parts of the law you do and don't want to follow. If you want to follow any of it, you have to follow all of it. And if you can't follow all of it, you're damned. That's the argument. Christ has fulfilled all of the law on our behalf. Civil, moral, and ceremonial. We're not bound by any of it. We're bound by Christ. Acts 15, 28 through 29. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. This is in the book of Acts where the Jews are trying to figure out what commands do these Gentiles need to keep to be a part of our covenant community, okay? We've got all these Gentiles now coming into a Jewish faith. What do they need to keep? And his answer is, they don't have to keep any of the Mosaic law. 
They need to keep these things that especially offend Jews so that they don't offend their brothers, but they're not bound by Mosaic law. Hebrews 8.13. Oh, I think I've already read this one. Yeah, I put that one on there twice. Sorry. I just really wanted to emphasize it, I guess. Okay. So, now, the text very clearly sees the law as one big thing and that it is completely fulfilled in Christ. So the objection I brought up at the beginning of the class where somebody says, why do you say that homosexuality is wrong but not eating bacon? And the answer is Christ has fulfilled all of the Old Testament law. We're not under any of it. The New Testament will condemn homosexuality, whereas it will not condemn bacon eating or something like this. Okay? So everybody with me so far on what we're talking about? God gives his perfect Old Testament Mosaic law to the Jews for a time. Paul says it's a babysitter. It's really great when I'm two to have a babysitter. There's nothing wrong with the babysitter. The babysitter's very nice. Her name was Courtney. She played games with us. She let us play volleyball in the house and break stuff. It was amazing. But now that I'm 30, if I walk up to the edge of the street and I want to cross the street and I call her and I say, hey, Courtney, can I cross the street? That's weird. That's the example Paul uses of what now it's like to try to follow Mosaic law now that Christ has come. Now that Christ has come, you don't need to go back to the babysitter. The babysitter was good for a season, But now that Christ has come, now that you are adopted as a son and no longer just, you know, kind of having this babysitter and waiting till you can gain this inheritance, Christ has fulfilled the law. Now, what about Matthew 5.18? Matthew 5.18 says something fascinating. Jesus says for this, he says this, For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that's the smallest Greek letter, it's an I, an iota, not a dot, that's a little mark in the Hebrew Bible, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So I just said, and according to Paul and according to these 10 different texts, it says we're not under Mosaic law. I don't know if this is in your notes, by the way. If not, you can just not. I've been printing out four to five pages of notes, and I thought, man, I really hate stapling all these. So I'm just going to give you some notes, and then you have to write, okay? So forgive me for my selfishness there. Um, but this is in Matthew 5, 18. You can look at it later if you want to. Jesus basically says that none of the law is going to pass away until all is accomplished, okay? What does he mean by that? I don't have a ton of time to spend specifically on this passage, but here's essentially what Jesus means. The, 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 the Jewish leaders are accusing Jesus of getting rid of the Old Testament, all right? They're accusing Jesus of not fulfilling the Old Testament, and what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 no. I'm actually interpreting it rightly, You're just keeping the letter of the law. I'm keeping the spirit of the law as well. And he says these things will not pass away until all is accomplished. When did Jesus accomplish these things? Yeah, in his life, death, ministry, and resurrection. What does he say on the cross? He says, tetelestai. It is accomplished. It is finished. That's his point. They're accusing him of getting rid of the law, and he's saying, no, 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 no. We're still bound by Mosaic law in my life. I'm the one to fulfill it. All these things are going to stay until I have accomplished them. So sometimes people read this verse and they get confused and they think that Jesus and Paul are like in a cage match with each other, and that's not what's going on, okay? Okay, let's mention some other things that are a little bit juicy, a little bit juicy and controversial, and then I'll tell you why we still cannot murder people even though we're not under the Mosaic law, all right? That's always a helpful thing to learn and know. Are we as Christians, with what we talked about, so Calvin's division of the law into three parts, we said is not true, the law is seen as one big thing, we're not bound by any of it, Christ uh, has completed all of it on our behalf. Do we then today as Christians Sabbath? Do we as Christians keep the Sabbath according to this teaching? No. Let me read you some passages. Colossians 2, 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink 
or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Here's another one, Romans 14.5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So, we are not bound in the Old Testament by having to keep a Sabbath. By the way, if you want to keep the Sabbath, it's Saturday. It's not Sunday. Shabbat, Jesus, or God rested on the last day of, uh, after creation, Saturday. If you want to keep a Sabbath, you've got to keep it on Saturday. It's not Sunday. All right? We do that as Christians. We worship on Sunday because Christ was raised on a Sunday. But we are not bound by the Old Testament idea of Sabbath. Let me say it stronger. If you work eight days in a row, you have not sinned. Now, with that in mind... Does the Bible still give us principles that we need to rest and rejuvenate and meet with God's people and pray and do these kind of things? Yes. Right? So I'm not saying never rest. In fact, I want you to rest. We as Americans have a very difficult time resting. I don't want you to just do something. I want you to sit there. I mean, I want you to rest. I want you to do things that rejuvenate you and hang out with other believers. But you're, it's not because you're bound by an Old Testament view of Sabbath. There's two passages I just read that said you're not under Sabbath specifically, but even all these other commands where it says that we're not under the Mosaic law, that's all of the Mosaic law. Everybody with me? So we don't Sabbath as Christians, we do rest. We do rest. God has wired us to where we need periods of rest. So please rest, but it's not because you're under Old Testament Mosaic law with Sabbath. It's because God wants you to rest because that's how he's wired you. Let me ask another one, and this is dangerous because I work for a church. Does the Bible say we, do, do Christians in the New Testament, do we tithe? No. Tithe means tenth. A tithe in the Old Testament was where you had to give a tenth of your first fruits to the temple because there are priests in there all day sacrificing animals and cleansing things, and so they can't go work a normal job. They can't go become a farmer or something like this in Israel, and so you would give some of your, uh, your produce and these kind of things to them, and that would be a tithe. It was a national tax of 10% that was placed on Israel. We don't have a temple like that because Christ is our temple. We don't have priests like that. Christ is our high priest, all right? You're, you are all priests. We're a kingdom of priests. Now, Though we're not commanded to tithe in an Old Testament sense, lest you think you're off the hook. I'm kidding, all right? Are we still commanded to give in the New Testament to support the work of ministry, to support ministers, to support missions, and these kind of things? We are multiple times, okay? And there, there's not a percentage given. It's what you can do with a cheerful heart. But when Paul talks about it, he says of the churches that have been giving to this collection that he's taken that they gave more than they were able all right, so that doesn't mean I don't want to give you a percentage. Some of you, it might be more than that. Some of you, it might be less than that. God does not need us. He uses us. So to say it, just to summarize everything I've been saying, Christ has fulfilled all the Old Testament law on our behalf. Okay? Christians don't Sabbath. We rest. Christians don't tithe. We give generously. We give cheerfully. We give joyfully. So you're seeing here that some of the commands look similar, but the reason we do them has changed. Everybody with me so far? Okay, let's read a few verses, and then I want to draw something up on this board, even though my handwriting is really scary. Now, are we still bound to follow certain things to be obedient to God, though we're not under Mosaic law? Absolutely. Absolutely we are. Let's look at a few of these verses. Again, 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 21. I put this here again, because look what Paul says. To the Jews, I became a, as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, although not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. Now look at the last part of this verse. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, meaning I'm not under Mosaic Torah, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So what he's saying is, though I'm not under Old Testament Mosaic law, 
I'm not just free to do whatever I want. I have a new master. I have a new, the law of Christ, if you want to think of it that way. Okay? Let's look at some more. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So there are people that say they really love Jesus, but they don't obey him. They don't follow him. They're walking in unrepentant sin. Jesus would say, you don't love me. Love is shown in action. It's not merely a squishy feeling. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. How about that? So, by the way, just to pause real quick, far from us not having to be ethical people or far from us not being bound to be in obedience, we're actually very much bound to be in obedience. Slavery to Christ is freedom from the Mosaic law and its condemnation. Okay? Matthew 7.21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. John 14.15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 John 2.5. But for whoever keeps his word... In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Okay? Now, let's, let me just draw a little chart here. We're going to do some colorful things here. So let's say this is pre-law, meaning Mosaic law. Law is spelled L-A-W. I just wrote it as L-O-W. That's low. That's a different thing. Okay? Law, here's Mosaic law. And let's call this the law of Christ. Okay, let's use a red marker here. What are some things that are sinful and forbidden by God even before we get the Mosaic Law, even before God gives His Ten Commandments and then all the extrapolations, the whatever 613 laws or whatever that stem from that in the Old Testament? What are some things that are sinful even before the Mosaic Law? Murder. Murder. Exactly right. You see that with like Noah and these kind of things? Murder. And I'll put this one across the board. That's sinful underneath the Mosaic Law, and it's sinful there. We're talking, the Bible in the New Testament multiple times tells us not to murder, okay? I love that that has to be a command, by the way. We just need to know, just to make sure, okay? What else? What's another one that before the Mosaic Law is given is something that's sinful? Stealing. Uh, pff, yes, I think it is. I don't know if it's mentioned specifically, but I'll go ahead and mention stealing. That's under the Mosaic Law. Yeah, I think stealing is in there because you have people stealing people's flocks and these kind of things with, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, good, good, good. Stealing. Uh, let's say idolatry, maybe. So disobeying or worshiping something that's not God. Idolatry. Okay. Now, there are many more, but we're just going to stop there. Now, under the Mosaic Law, let's name some things that are just specifically in the Mosaic Law that are not before the law is given and not now that we follow uh, under the law of Christ. I've already given you one, which is my favorite Gentile indulgence. Yes, unclean animals, or as I call it, bacon, right? Okay, so uh, I'm going to put bacon. How about that? Food laws. Food laws. I can eat crab and these kind of weird animals. What else? Stoning your children, okay? Way to keep it nice and cheery in here this morning. Stoning your children. Wow. Okay, what else? Woo, who wants to top that? All right, next. What is something else? 
Circumcision, trimming your beard. Circumcision, question mark on the spelling, trimming your beard. Don't trim your beard is what it is. Oh, by the way, if you want to be bound by Mosaic Law, I see a lot of smooth faces in here, so just keep that in mind. Trimming your beard. Okay, now I'm sorry to turn my back on you. I don't have another way to do that and write on the board. Okay, so here's what I want you to see. Murder is condemned before the Mosaic Law, it's condemned by the Mosaic Law, and it's condemned by Christ and his apostles. You see that? Though the rule is the same across the board, hear this, this is the biggest part of this lesson, the reason we follow that rule has changed. The reason we follow that rule has changed. These things in blue, those were just for a time. Those were the babysitter to get us to Christ, as Paul would say. But these things in red... They look the same. What people do is they say, okay, wait a second. I know we're not supposed to murder, and I know we're not supposed to steal, and I know we're not supposed to commit idolatry, so we must still be under the Mosaic law. That's how Calvin thought, right? If God has given his one law to his people forever, and he has made one covenant with his people, then nothing must change. And so what he would say is, wait a second. If you say that if Christ has fulfilled all the Mosaic law, then now you can murder. But you can't because murder is something that is universally part of something God hates. It's not wrong just because the Mosaic law now that Christ has come. It's wrong because Christ hates it. It's wrong because God hates it, even before the Mosaic law is given. So our tendency is to think, well, wait a second, Zach. If you say that we're not under Mosaic law, then we can just murder and we can steal and we can do all these things. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the rule looks the same in each of these three periods, but the reason we follow the rule has changed. Okay, everybody with me on this? Let me give you an example. Let's say I'm in Texas, God's country. Notice I said country and not state. We're in Texas. And we're driving 70 miles an hour near the border. And we cross over into Louisiana. Okay? Cross over into Louisiana, which is not God's country. Okay? Unless you're, don't tell Lance Walker I said that. Okay? And as we cross the border into Louisiana, we look up at the speed limit sign. And the speed limit sign still says 70 miles an hour. What might you assume from looking at that speed limit sign? That you're still in Texas. You were driving in Texas, 70 miles an hour. You cross over into Louisiana. You look at the sign. You know you were maybe playing on your phone or changing the radio. You look up at the sign again, and you say, okay, I'm still in Texas because the sign says 70 miles an hour. Though the sign says 70 miles an hour in both cases, you're under a different jurisdiction. You don't follow it now because you're in Texas. You follow it now because you're in Louisiana. In the same way, though we're not under Mosaic law, these commands look similar So our tendency is to think, well, the reason that I shouldn't do this is because I'm bound by the Old Testament, I'm bound by the Ten Commandments, I'm bound by the Mosaic Law. No, you've now transitioned into another state. You still don't murder. The speed limit's still 70 miles an hour. But the reason you keep that law has changed. You have a new master. Everybody with me on this? Okay. All right. Now we're going to do something that you typically would not do in a class like this which is New Testament theology, we're going to do a little bit of philosophy to help us then as Christians think through um, what I'm talking about here. By the way, of the Ten Commandments, all of those are repeated in the New Testament except for one. Which one is it? Which one is it? Sabbath keeping, right? That's exactly right, Sabbath keeping. Okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to look at some philosophical systems. So now that we realize we as Christians are not under the Mosaic Law. Christ has fulfilled all of that for us. If you try to go back to fulfilling the Mosaic Law, you will be condemned because you cannot keep it. We are still bound to follow Jesus because we love Jesus. He's our king. We want to obey him. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over a few different ethical systems, not because you need these, 
But just because they're helpful for as we read the Bible, learning how to apply those commands to our society today, okay? Our ethic is whatever the Bible says as Christians. We have a much simpler ethic than the rest of the world. If the Bible says it, we follow it. It's much easier. But even with the commands God has given us, it can get tricky. So the Bible will say not to murder, but what do you do now do with stem cell research and these kind of things? Is it murder? And you start having to think about it. The Bible says not to murder, but what about end-of-life issues with euthanasia or not? What about when you go to war, where you can kill in war, but only to this extent, and what is seen as a war crime and what is not? You can see that even though God has given us his commands, our job as Christians and our job as theologians is to take these commands and apply them to new situations that arise in our culture, okay? The Bible is sufficient. It's all that we need, but we have to study the Bible in depth to figure out whether or not these things going on in culture fit underneath one of these umbrella commands that God has given us in his word. You with me? So, I'm going to give you five different ethical systems, and we're going to look through these, and I think these will help you not only understand how culture thinks, but they will help us understand how we can best apply Jesus' commands. Everybody with me? Everybody awake? I know this is a lot. Uh, By the way, again, all these are online. All these uh, lessons are online on our website. So, if any of these you want to hear again, Maybe you want to hear Jeff's thing on the Trinity again or mine on justification from last week again. We only have an hour in here, so we're kind of force-feeding you a lot of things. Uh, feel free to listen to that online. I think that, that you'll find that to be encouraging. But let's go through these five ethical systems. By the way, only two of these are Christian or even Christian-ish. Most of them are not, but I want you to see how people think of ethics. The first one. Subjectivism. Subjectivism, okay? You probably see this there in your notes. This is probably the most common ethic of our culture. Let me give you a definition of it. Don't try to write all this down. I just want to make sure. I don't care, by the way, if you know fancy names or theological jargon. I just want you to know the points. It's like the Trinity. As long as you know there's one God, three persons, each person's fully God, we're happy. All right, that's all we want. So uh, ethical systems. Let me give you a definition of subjectivism. Ethical subjectivism is the belief that whenever people say something is morally good, they mean they like it or approve of it. This is the idea that's so prevalent in our culture, which goes like this. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. There's no absolute truth. You don't push your values on me. I won't push my values on you. Have you heard this kind of language? Surely you've seen this in the news and online and these kind of things. This is the most common cultural ethic that we have. It's called subjectivism. You see in there the word subjective. The idea is that there's not an objective truth that we're trying to line up with but rather each person's opinion is their own truth. All right, there was someone who recently said we live in a post-fact society, which is not true in God's eyes, but it is true in our society's eyes. That's what subjectivism is, okay? Subjectivism, whatever's good for you is good for you. Something is morally right if one believes it's morally right and morally wrong if someone believes it's morally wrong with no ultimate grounding. Someone who is a subjectivist has to say that... I mean, that that logical contradictions can't be true. They just hold to logical contradictions. They embrace a self-defeating system, all right? That's subjectivism. Is this biblical? Come on, this is a softball. Boom, knock it out of the park, right? No, this is not biblical at all. God has given us objective commands that we follow and line up with his will. We don't get to make our own morality. By the way, if you have to invent your morality or get your morality from your society or something like that, there is no morality. There's just a bunch of opinions that have been kind of clumped together. The second one, again, here's a fancy term. You don't have to remember this. (laughs) 
deontological ethics. Deontological ethics. Learn that word and impress your friends. When you hang out with your friends, try to slip the word deontological in there. I promise after a few times you'll have no more friends, all right? (laughs) Deontological ethics. The Greek word deon means duty, all right? So that helps you understand it. It's duty-based ethics, D-U-T-Y, duty-based ethics, deontological ethics. The big philosopher who supported this is a guy named Immanuel Kant, K-A-N-T, Immanuel Kant, okay? Uh, I'll give you the definition. It makes no sense, so I'll give it to you, and then I'll explain it. Act so that the maxim may be capable of becoming a universal law for all rational beings. It's called the categorical imperative. What does that mean? Here's what Kant said. Whereas the subjectivist says that there's not objective moral truth, it's just within us, Kant is the opposite. He says that we are bound by certain objective truths that we must keep no matter the situation. Okay? So, for example, if I think it's okay to lie when I need to lie to get out of a sticky situation, Kant would say, do you want to make that a universal law? Do you want to say that people should never lie unless it's convenient for them? No. So don't, that's, that's, that's how you know that that's unethical. So all I want you to know, though, is where subjectivism is very subjective, hence the name, deontological ethics is very objective. It doesn't matter the consequences of the action. You do the right action no matter the consequences. Okay? This is where it gets sticky. Let me give you an example. Let's say you are hiding Jews in your basement in 1942, and you live in Poland. And the Nazis come, and they knock on your door, and they say, you know, uh, Guten Tag, are you hiding Jews here? All right? Now, you wouldn't give up the Jews, but according to Kant, if you lied, you have still sinned. You have still failed morally. So I don't know. Maybe you do something else. Maybe you karate chop the Nazis and get out of there or something. But he would say, even in that circumstance, to lie would be to do something immoral because lying is never right. So with Kant, the action is right or wrong no matter the consequence. Forget the consequences. We don't care about consequences. We just care about the act being right or wrong. Do we have a duty to do this universally with all people? Are we with me? Now, I'm not saying Kant would give up the Jews. <laughs> I'm just saying that if you were to say, well, I would just lie to the Nazis and then they wouldn't come get the Jews, he would say you've still failed morally then. Because you've lied, and the Bible says not to lie. He might not say it that way because uh, his Christianity is questionable, but you get the point. Okay? Now, whereas this is not biblical, there are elements of this that I think are very biblical. All right? That an action is right or wrong in and of itself, not based on the consequences. Not based on the consequences. So, in that sense, I think that there are elements of this that are very biblical. When God gives us his commands, do we get to not follow those based on certain situations and things that are not convenient for us? No, we've got to follow it regardless. This is where I think Kant and deontological ethics can be helpful. So, subjective, uh, objective, and universal. Forget the consequences. Everybody with me so far? I know this is a lot. This is really heady. Again, it'll be online. This is the most philosophy we'll do in this class. Uh, so, but I just want you getting the big picture. I don't care that you remember all. I just want you knowing subjectivism. Ethics are found just in whatever I think. Deontological ethics, ethics are universal, duty-bound, doesn't matter the consequences. That's all I want you to get. You with me? Okay, third one. Virtue ethics. Virtue ethics. This comes from a little guy, maybe you've heard of him, his name is Aristotle, all right? He's kind of a big deal. Right? His, his, Plato was his teacher. Alexander the Great was his student. What Aristotle said was, you're focusing on the wrong thing. 
You're asking what makes something good or bad in and of itself. For Aristotle, the focus is on becoming a virtuous person so that when the situation arises, you know what you should do. If you focus more on being a virtuous person, when a new circumstance arises where you're not really sure what to do ethically, because you've been practicing this virtue, you will then in that moment know what to do. And according to Aristotle, most virtues lie in between two extremes, what's called the golden mean. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're a soldier, all right, and you're going to war. Is it good and right and ethical to be a coward and run away and let your friends get killed? No, it is not. That's one extreme. But on the other side, is it virtuous to just go on a suicide mission and just run out there, you know, run into the bullets, yelling, you know, uh, you know, come take the Alamo or remember the Alamo or something, just run out there and do something like that in the middle of World War II? No. It's somewhere in the middle. There's a balance between cowardice and, and uh, you know, being overly brash or suicidal, and that balance is bravery. Okay? So in Aristotle's ethic, he would say that your job is to learn to be a virtuous person, which you mainly find out by finding what's in between two extremes. And by practicing that, you become more virtuous. Now, there are some things that don't have two extremes. Adultery, for example, is just wrong to Aristotle. Aristotle does believe that innate within humanity, we know that certain things are right and wrong. By the way, can you think of somebody else that says that? Paul in Romans 1. He says that there is a sense in which we know when we have sinned against God because God has made us in his image. So, subjectivism. Basically, there is no morals. Do whatever you want, all right? Deontological ethics. There are strong morals. Doesn't matter the consequences. Do what's right, period. Virtue ethics. Work on being a virtuous person. You know already kind of what's right and wrong. Learn to cultivate those virtues, and you'll know what to do when the situation arises. We'll have some review at the end, by the way. So if your brain is hurting, mine hurts, even as I'm trying to explain this. Now, let me mention something that I think is really helpful for the Christian life that Aristotle says. By the way, I'm, I'm trying to give you biblical principles. I'm not saying do this because Kant or Aristotle. I don't care about these guys. I'm saying what are some helpful things that other people have given us so that we can best read the Bible? We care about what the Bible says, right? Is this, are there elements of this that are Christian? Yes, that we are to so walk by the Spirit, we're to walk in righteousness, to use the biblical term, all right? We're to be temperate. There's, there's a balance between, you know, uh, being completely celibate within a marriage versus being sexually immoral. There's somewhere in the middle, all right? There's these kind of principles. Uh, and so there are certain elements here that I think are biblical. Even though Aristotle doesn't, is certainly not a Christian, uh, because he's made in God's image, God has still implanted some things into him, all right? Now, here's something, though, that he says that I think is biblical and could be very, very helpful for all of us as Christians, okay? You can practice righteousness just like you would practice a sport or practice an instrument, okay? So we practice a lot of things. So if I'm a basketball player, I would just sit there and try to shoot 100 free throws in a row and try to make all of them in a row. I'd only get about eight or so, and then I'd have to start over. Or if you're a flute player, you practice playing the flute. Now, how well do you do the very first time you play the flute? Not well. All right, if you've ever had kids that played an instrument, you know because it drives you up the wall. You don't do great because you're learning and you're practicing. I don't expect you to be the world's best flute player the first time you do it. But as you practice, it becomes easier and easier and easier. Now, there's, for some reason, we'll practice all these other things, but we, and I might mean all humans, myself included, don't typically think of righteousness that way. Where as Christians, ones who've already been justified, we can practice righteousness and we get better at it. If you're tempted to lust and a beautiful woman walks by you that's not your wife, 
and you look away, guess what? It's easier to look away next time. And the more you practice looking away, the more you find yourself doing it instinctually because you've practiced righteousness. The more when she walks by and you look and check her out, the more tempted you are next time to check her out because you've practiced unrighteousness. You will get better at walking in these gifts Christ has given you the more you practice them. It's just like being a flute player. If someone who comes out of a background that's very lust-filled becomes a Christian the very next day, guess what? He's still going to be, he's a, he's a terrible flute player. He's really bad at averting his eyes. But the more he practices this new gift that he's been given in Christ, the better he gets at it. I'm trying to think about this as I was preparing this lesson in my own life with my anxiety and my worry. When I have a thought that's anxious or filled with worry, in that moment I can practice giving it to Christ and not worrying about it. Or I can focus on it. And whatever I do, it becomes easier to do the next time. So let's be, we are justified by faith alone. God already loves us. So I'm not asking you to go do more moral things and uh, strive really hard in your own strength or something like this. I'm saying because you're already loved, the more you practice walking in what you've already been given, the easier to do it becomes. The easier to do it becomes. So if you're used to stubbing your toe and cursing or whatever, next time, restrain yourself. And the more you restrain yourself, a year from then you find out, you know what? I can restrain myself on this. You've practiced righteousness. I think that's a biblical concept that we get from Aristotle, okay? Number four. Okay, so this one's not Christian. Let's put a red by it, right? It's, it's bad. It's evil. Okay, red. That one's not Christian. This one, these ones have elements that are Christian, okay? Red has to do with fire. That's what I meant, by the way, with evil. What does that mean? Uh, now, I want to give you two that I think are the devil. I think these ethical systems are everything that's wrong with America. I think they're everything that's wrong with American thinking. I think these things are really bad. Let's go over the first one. The first one is called utilitarianism. I'm going to look, have to look how to spell that. I'm a terrible speller regardless. If Jeff was teaching this, he just would never look down at his notes. He's a great speller. Utilitarian or utilitarianism. Okay? Utilitarianism. Let me give you a definition of this. Maybe you've heard of this before. Utilitarianism is where the, you, the definition of utilitarianism is that something is good if it's the greatest good for the greatest number of people. If it produces more total pleasure than it does pain for the greatest number of people, it is good. Okay? Let me read you another definition. An act is morally right if it produces more overall pleasure than pain for the greatest number of people and is morally wrong if it produces more pain than pleasure for the greatest number of people. That is what is known as utilitarianism. It's made by two guys, Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. And what it does is, in one sense, it's very much the opposite of deontological ethics. Deontological ethics would say, care about the action, don't worry about the consequences. Utilitarianism says the opposite. The ends justifies the means. Just worry about the result, not about the action. So if I were to give you this logical problem, or this ethical problem, and I were to say this, if you could eradicate cancer across the entire world, but to do so you had to torture and murder a child, would you do it? The utilitarian says, absolutely. Think of all the pain that I'm stopping by doing this one act. Kant would say, no way. You don't kill the kid. It's wrong to kill the kid. The kid's innocent. But the utilitarian doesn't, the utilitarian says, what's the end goal? And that's what's most important. You ever heard this kind of thinking? 
Would you kill one person to save ten? And I don't mean killing a righteous like military sin. I mean murder. Would you murder somebody to, to save the lives of ten? Something like this. You have to wrestle with that. That's utilitarianism. That is so inbred and ingrained into our thinking. We constantly think that way. Well, what will be the end results? How many people will die at the end? Therefore, this action is either morally right or not morally right based on numbers. People's lives have value because they're made in the image of God, not because of how many there are. Everybody hear that? That's huge. That's utilitarianism. A great case study, if you want to think more about this, is if you've ever read the book Lone Survivor, where you have to figure out, wait a second, I'm a Navy SEAL team. Do I shoot this innocent shepherd boy to protect the lives of future Marines, or do I let him go free knowing that he's going to tell you know, this, these Taliban leaders or whatever that we're here and more people will die? That's the issue they're dealing with in that book. Is that biblical? That the ends justifies the means, it doesn't matter the action, as long as the end result produces more pleasure than pain? It's not. And the people that have critiqued this view have brought some pretty strong critiques. They've said, wait a second, you're telling me, utilitarian people that hold this view, you're telling me that it, you could torture a kid as long as it produced enough pleasure for the, enough people. And they would say, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay? Lastly, the one that is most, dis- oh, so we need to put a red dot here. In this case, red means fire. It's bad. It's from the devil. <laughs> All right. Lastly, this is the one that is most American. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that. It's called pragmatism. Sorry, I'm having to write all over the board here. Pragmatism. When I say this is American, that's not a shot. I'm an American <laughs> at America. That is to say that we invented this as a philosophy. This comes out of America. This is from a guy named John Dewey, another guy named William James. Also linked to this is a guy named Charles Sanders Pierce. Here's the definition of pragmatism. Something is good if it works or produces practical application. Something is good if it works or produces practical application. An act is morally right if it can achieve a practical end for our lives and is morally wrong if it hinders that application. This is how so many of us in America think. We invented this. We constantly ask this question, well, what works the best? What's most practical? What's most pragmatic? That's what we think about. Listen, God is not a pragmatist. When God doesn't want you living with your girlfriend before you're married, that's very impractical, but it's righteous. It's not practical when somebody asks you to go one mile with them that you go two miles with them. That's not very practical. The devil has more disciples than Jesus does. The road that is wide is wide that leads to destruction, and it's a narrow road for those who find Christ, all right? God is not about numbers. This can so easily sink into a church where the church starts thinking, we must be doing a good job because we've sent in this many baptisms, we're making this much money, we have this many people, or whatever, and that's not how God evaluates things. He's not a pragmatist. He looks at faithfulness. One of the things that I most love about Parkway is we have committed ourselves to preserving God's truth and his word and have not capitulated just to get numbers. This is one of the reasons where Jeff and I, when we were talking about this church, said we want to be here. These people love truth more than they just love numbers because God loves truth more than he loves numbers. Amen? So be encouraged in that. that your elders who have helped lead you and you guys as a congregation in this I mean, I'm, I'm blessed to be here because you guys have the same heart that I have in this. We're about, we want to be faithful. This is one of the things I tell my community group leaders, that in your community group, look at your faithfulness, not just the results. 
You can be a missionary over in India for 80 years and be faithful in preaching the Bible and see very few or no converts, and guess what God will say? Well done, good and faithful servant. We are about faithfulness. We're not just about numbers or results. This is a very Western American idea. It's what most businesses are based on. Most amount of money no matter what. That's our goal is numbers, more, 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 more. No, deep, not just wide, deep. And act is right or wrong if it glorifies God. If it glorifies God, if it lines up with His Word, regardless of the results. I get that the results are difficult. I get that they're difficult. When I'm, when I'm counseling somebody to stay in their marriage when they're thinking about divorce, they say, in pragmatic thinking, but this will be so difficult. And I say, I understand. I don't want to minimize that. The results of your righteous decision will be more difficult. But it's the right thing to do. At the resurrection, you will not wish you would have done otherwise. Let me give you a little, uh, uh, a little thought experiment, which I think is fun with, with this pragmatism thing. Okay. Let's do a little fun ethical challenge that you might get like in a classroom or something. Uh, So let's say there's a boat, and on the boat are three people, okay? Now, by the way, for those of you guys that think, well, you know what, I would do this, and I would call down a helicopter, and I would save all the people or whatever, you have to follow the rules of this analogy I'm giving you, okay? you got to follow the rules. We all agree that if the Nazis come to my door to try to get the Jews, maybe I shoot the Nazis and escape with the Jews. There's other solutions. But for this thought experiment, you have to play by the rules. But here are the rules. There's one boat, and on that boat are three people. And the people cannot swim. Okay, you're on the water. The people cannot swim. And here's who's on the boat. A three-year-old little girl, and she's just cute as can be. I mean, just cute as a button, little pigtails. She has a little teddy bear that's pink. Very cute, right? There is the president. Now, if you, for some reason you don't like the current president, that's not my point. Pick a president you like in this example, whoever that is, whether you like them or not. I'm not, I'm not getting into that. Pick a president you like. So there is a little girl who's three. There is a president from history you like somewhere, okay? And then thirdly, there is a man who's 90 years old and has cancer. 90 years old and has cancer. They all fall off the boat. You have one life raft, and you can only save one. Who do you save? Now, don't answer yet. Just think about it. I want to give us 10 seconds to think. Who do we think? Who do we save? Let's see. We've got a little girl. She's pretty cute. The president, though, makes some big decisions. I mean, guys are willing to give their life for him in the Secret Service. When I've asked that question, I have never said, heard somebody say, save the 90-year-old man. Why? Because he's not as useful. That's pragmatism. Well, he's 90. He's going to die soon. He already has cancer. Maybe this is a, a grace to him. We just let him die. They'll mention the president because he's important. He has an important job. They'll mention the little girl. She has her whole life left to live. But nobody has ever said the man. Nobody. Because his life's less valuable. Because, you know, really, look at the results. What really can he do? Here's the answer to that puzzle, biblically. Ready? All three lives matter equally. All three lives are made in the image of God. God does not say that one is less valuable than another based on their productivity or their age or their position or any of that. When you instantly go to, well, the old man, he's going to die anyway, and the president's important, you see how ingrained pragmatism is into the American mind. We all do this. We have a tendency to think of the results, not the act in and of itself. And what's important is the act in and of itself. Everybody with me? Is that fun? Do you all like this kind of stuff? Start putting brain teasers in the bathroom or something. Uh, Okay, so let's just summarize all of this real quickly. And, uh, and then I'll have Jeff come up. Are we 
Okay, let's start from the, from the beginning. I know we went over a lot of things today. Is the Mosaic Law, according to the Bible, one whole thing that it's either all or nothing, or is it divided up into parts? One whole thing, all or nothing. Amen. Has Christ fulfilled that one whole thing on your behalf so that you can be seen as righteous before the Father? Yes, he has. Can we now, though, do whatever we want because we're not under the Mosaic Law? No. Why? Because we're under the law of Christ. Yes, we follow and love Jesus. Okay? When it comes to now the fact that we know we're to follow and love Jesus as we think about different issues that come up in society, that come up in uh, medical practice, that come up in warfare, that come up in these different areas of society, we can use these different schemes to see our thinking, to test our thinking, to see whether or not it's biblical. Somebody give me a definition of subjectivism, just on your own. Don't use a technical definition. Just what is that? Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. This is the book of Judges, all right? That's right. What are Kantian or deontological ethics? It's duty-based, right? So something's right or wrong regardless of the consequences. It's, it, if you can take it and make it a universal law, then it would be good, all right? That's what, uh, what Kant would say. So this is not duty-based. This is based on whatever you want and how you feel. This is based on actual objective rules that are binding for everybody regardless of the consequences. What are virtue ethics? Uh, a balance? What else? Give me some more because I'm going to go on that. That's good. Anybody else? Yes, okay. It's practicing righteousness so that you can become more of a righteous person so that it's easier to make these calls later. Okay? The more you walk by the Spirit, the more you'll hear the Spirit's voice. The more you walk by the Spirit, the easier it is to put sin to death. The more you walk by the Spirit, the more you get spiritually attacked. But the more you walk by the Spirit, the more your life changes. Okay? And, yeah, a lot of times the ethical thing is between two extremes. Not always. I mean, when it comes to adultery, when it comes to rape, when it comes to these kind of things, there's no scale. That's just always wrong, and that's always wrong to Aristotle. He would say certain things don't fall on this scale. Okay? That's why I think these two taken together. uh, Oops. Sorry. Now I'm outlining it in red. That's confusing after my little scheme. These two together, I think, are a more biblical ethic. What is utilitarianism? Yes, greatest good for the greatest number of people, the end justifies the means. That kind of thinking. That's very common. All right, very common. What is pragmatism? Yes, pr- yeah, productivity, production. Whatever, whatever has the most practical result is what's most ethical. All right, you have to be careful of that. It's very easy to say, uh, how should we do this to get these people here? Or what if this person does this? Or what if this person does this? It doesn't matter. We have to say, what does the Bible say? And then we figure out what we need to adapt and change in our life to get there. All right? We don't say, I'll give you another example of this. I was talking to a guy uh, who I do think was a believer, uh, but he was walking in sin, sleeping with his girlfriend before they're married. They were living together. And when I say, hey, Christ is asking you to stop sleeping together until you get married, uh, his, his reasoning was, pragmat, was pragmatism. Well, I don't have a place to stay, and we've already got a lease together, and that would cost me a lot of money, and it would be inconvenient. And I'm saying, whoa, 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 whoa. That doesn't matter. Is God asking you to do this in his word? Okay, if that's the case, now we can figure out how to change it. What do we need to do? Do we need to find you a roommate? Do we need to give you some money? What do we need to do to make it happen? But we don't want to say, I'm not going to follow the biblical thing because it's inconvenient. Those are the ones there. Okay, the Reverend Dr. Jeff Ashley, if you will please come up here, and we're going to talk about ethics, and we're going to talk about Mosaic Law. We can talk about things like Sabbath. We, we can talk about are certain things sinful in the Mosaic Law that are not repeated in the New Testament or something like that. <clears throat> what, 
One quick clarifier. I'm sorry, I just thought of this. One real quick clarifier. I'll call on you first. I'm not saying that we're not, we, we have no use for the Old Testament. You understand that? We know who God is through the Old Testament. We know about prophecies of Christ from the Old Testament. We know God's heart from the Old Testament. Uh, in one sense, I'll say it this way. We're under the Old Testament. We're not under the Mosaic law. We still, these are the scriptures. Jesus would call the Old Testament the Bible. All right? We don't just cut out the Old Testament. We're just not bound by Mosaic law. We still know who God is and what he likes and these kind of things through the Old Testament. Okay? So I'm not saying cut out your Old Testament. I'm just saying know that Christ has fulfilled that Torah part of it for you. Okay.